Princess Rise for their Majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals. Stand by! Three cheers for Her Majesty the Queen! I know I don't have a Soho House rosewater scented candle, <sighs> but I have a candle. <gasps> nice, for Roberta. For this I like the ambiance. setting. Yeah, it's not the uh, Nancy Myers orgy, whatever it was described, <laughs> but um, all right. Welcome back to Royally Obsessed. I'm Roberta. I'm Rachel. And we're going to get into all the royal news of this week. But first, if you haven't already, please, please follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and write us info at gallerypodcast.com. You can also get Royally Obsessed sweatshirts and really, really cute corgi totes. Those are shop.royallyobsessed.com. Rachel, it's been, well, it's a very reflective week, but it's also been a huge week for certain someone in particular, which is Megan. Yes, Megan. Oh my goodness. We have so much to talk about. Can I give you the tease of what's coming up? Yes, please do. Okay. Well, we are joined by Patrick Jeffson this week, Princess Diana's former private secretary and chief of staff. He is joining us to reflect on the fact that it's been 25 years since Princess Diana passed away. I think that is so staggering to think about. We're talking about Harry and William's potential plans to honor their mother this week. And as you mentioned, the cut. I feel like two words. Megan. The old, You don't even need her last name on the cover. Megan. This interview. So unexpected. We've got details about the queen and the new prime minister and a Reformation shopping spree that we're pretty happy about. But this is also the first day of September. Let's do it. <laughs> September also means happy almost birthday, Rachel. To both of us. <laughs> For our royal refreshment, we have a very- It's our month, Roberta. I know, but yours especially because it's this Saturday, this September 3rd, Rachel Bowie's birthday. So in honor of that, the royal refreshment today is dry chicken. Dry chicken? I propose we not make plans. I propose we give this thing a chance and let it work out how it works out. So what do you say? Do you want to not make plans with me? Leap year? I had to ask Matt what your favorite movie was. It has nothing to do with the podcast. It has nothing to do with birthdays, but it's just a scene from Leap Year that I thought would be perfect to play because it is your low-key favorite movie. Singing in the Rain is also your other favorite movie. My low-key favorite movie that has a 12% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but it is my comfort food movie. Like, I don't know what it is, but Matthew Good Do you know the dry chicken just... reference, though, where he he's like, the chicken is dry? And he's like, who said that? And then he walks out. <laughs> yes, that's right. I was like, end. oh, my dying, God. Roberta, that was this... such a sweet gift. <laughs> what a... I love that that's what my spouse says is my favorite movie. Oh, my god. Is it gosh. not? I can't believe is I singing the rain, no, in the rain your favorite? No, no, no. If I'm home alone, I put on leap year. It's just comfort food. I've heard gotta have it from your spouse that you've watched that many <laughs> times. I probably have. I mean, it's just like easy listening, easy viewing. Easy I viewing. hope you get to oh, watch it. I can't I, believe. Speaking of plans, though, because that was the scene they were talking about plans. What are your plans for your birthday? So I'm in Maine. So I'm actually going to just hang out with my family. And I have to say where I go in Maine is my favorite place in the whole world. It's just so calm. You don't have cell phone service, so I can really disconnect. But then at the end of the month, I think I've mentioned I am going to Paris to celebrate Uh, officially. uh. So a lovely weekend away without my family. I'm going with my friend who listens to this podcast. Hello, Anna, if you are listening. Um, Anyways, I'm very excited. But 
anyways, there's so much to talk about. We don't we don't need to keep talking about me. <laughs> Your week I, is going well. Well, I hope you have the best birthday. Thank I wish you. I could tag along with you and Anna. And my week is going great. Yeah, I'm like red from the, the conversation. Sorry. I know because I I dropped a surprise on you. I feel like it was <laughs> out of left field. It was also such a random movie quote, but I loved it so much. Um, I love it. Thank and you. I went to a, I went to a Harry Potter exhibit. That's what I want to tell you. Oh, I wanted to ask loved, everything about this. You would have loved. And what, I, what I wish you were Where there. Where is it? It's in Philly. It ends next week. So it's like it's at the Franklin Institute. And it was just like it was very cool. It was more about the movies and the costumes from the movies and like the background of all the choices there. And it's just cool. If you're in the Philly area and you love Harry Potter, I, I would recommend it. It is a little pricey but i had a lot of fun me and my friend just ran around the whole time and it was you great, looked so. so at home at the seat at the <laughs> desk what was the desk called what's that called Umbr- again umbridge's desk, umbridge's desk. Was like, i was like I must not tell lies yes and i love that i can get these references now yeah all right well what are so what are we sipping uh dry ch- no <laughs> and now it's time for the weekly royal cocktail I'm sipping rosé, our royal refreshment. Want, oh, good, good, good. You have a birthday refreshment. Cheers. I absolutely Cheers. do. Cheers. But while we're sipping, we are going to read this listener email from Jeanette, which is something to think about. She said, I listen to your podcast and count myself a fan. I enjoy news about the entire royal family. My favorite shows are the ones where you share the love and do not concentrate on just the Sussexes. I was a Megan fan from her early Suits days, so it's not that I don't like her. Harry and Megan chose to step back as senior royals, and it seems they get more coverage than those who are still upholding the monarchy. I ask that you give equal coverage to all royals. You know what? We do understand that reflection. I do also want to mention that this month in particular has been a little Sussex themed, but the rest of the royals are on vacay. They're at Balmoral and off the grid. So I do anticipate a lot more of everyone coming up, but it's good uh, to hear from you on that. Yeah, I feel like the timing of everything that Megan and Harry have been doing has just been so concentrated yeah, there's on no when shortage. the royals are just so quiet. So it yeah. definitely has leaned Sussex and we'll definitely have more from the Cambridges. And this I episode think. is a great balance because we have this fantastic interview with Patrick Jepson. Yes, which we'll get into. But first, we need to flash back 25 years ago. This is a really sad This Week in Royal History. And now, this week in Royal History. So, of course, it was the death of Diana. It's been 25 years since we lost Princess Diana, who was pronounced dead at a French hospital at 5 a.m. local time. She was 36 years old. The car crash, of course, occurred after a swarm of paparazzi on motorcycles began aggressively tailing them as they left the Ritz. She was with three other people. The driver lost control of the vehicle and crashed at 70 miles per hour in the Pont de l'Alma tunnel. The speed limit was half of that. It was like 35. Um, this isn't a newsreel because I know we've played that in episodes past around this time of the year. Um, this is Lord Jay. He's the British ambassador in Paris during that time. And he was the one to tell the Queen's deputy private secretary what happened. So here's that. I was in bed in the embassy and the phone calls, two phone calls came early on and told me that there had been an accident. And um, clearly I needed to get to the hospital quickly. When we arrived, we were met by the uh, French interior minister, Jean-Pierre Chevenemont, uh, and he said he had heard that she had been, there had been the accident, she had been badly hurt, but didn't know how badly she'd been hurt. And then um, Chevenemont was taken out by one of the nurses, and he came back in tears, really, and came up to me and said, I'm afraid she's, she's dead. But then after we had heard that she had died, then I was on the phone, clearly, to... Um, to Robin Jamvin in Balmoral to tell him so he could tell the royal family that she had died. 
and also to Downing Street. It was just getting light. Two Mercedes drew up and Mohammed Al-Fayed got out of them and I told him that the Princess of Wales was dead. He knew that his son had died and we offered our condolences. And later he goes on to say that that next morning after you know, Prince William and Prince Harry are informed that their mother has died. Prince William requested that they go to church on Sunday, which is not something that he normally did. And so they went to church that Sunday morning at Balmoral. So I thought that was just like some insight into what was going on at Balmoral at the time. We know that, of course, like we mentioned at the top of the episode, the Royals are there, the Queen, the Cambridges, it seems like they're still on summer break. And we also know that there's been years past public displays of remembering of Diana around this time, but that that won't be the case going forward. The brothers plan to honor her privately and quietly. There was a mention in Prince Harry's speech that he gave over the weekend in Aspen, but they've said that really they are done with the documentaries. They're done. They had the statue honoring her last year in Kensington Palace, Lincoln Gardens, but that's really it moving forward. So we'll see if we hear from maybe like Charles Spencer. I don't know. I don't know if we'll hear anything publicly, but it's just a sad week. It is a sad week. And I'm really, I think we've both feel so honored that Patrick Jeffson was able to join us and reflect on his relationship working with Diana. So that is coming up. We got to talk about the cut. And (laughs) this was so unexpected, Roberta. It dropped, of course, on Monday. We were both, I mean, we text, it's like what happens when things like this go down. Roberta and I are just so quick. It's like I, it's almost like everything, my surroundings go blurry and I just see my phone to get in touch with Roberta. (laughs) And I think it was so unexpected because it is the anniversary of Diana's death too. And it does feel a little bit weird in the timing. I do think there's been talk about how they have really no control over when this would have come out. Um, but it did happen in the last week or so. I mean, the talk yes. was of the first episode coming out was just last week. And they said that this interview happens like right around then. So and credit really to the writer, quick. because yeah. that's, I think I just, as someone that we are content creators, we are writers too. just the pressure and Allison P. Davis just did an exceptional job. I think her descriptions, like I think she had me at hello or she had me at this sentence when she talked (laughs) about Megan being backlit by the late morning light in the Nancy Myers cinematic interior. She said like, like town and country goop and architectural digest had an orgy, which you mentioned at the top. It's like kind of how I visualize their Montecito property and them kind of like swanning around. I know that they're not actually swanning around, but that's what I see. It's so picture perfect in a way that almost was like, a little eye rolly. Like, how could it be that perfect? <laughs> and I know we'll get into this, but I do feel like I pictured the queen reading this in the morning, like at the breakfast table with like Will and Kate and being like, now tell me again, what is a Zillow? <laughs> <laughs> what is a Nancy Meyer? <laughs> I hope so... the queen has seen a Nancy Meyers movie because that is just gold. I mean, come on. I did I like... just can't imagine her getting any of the references at all. I know. And I, um, I think one of the things that we both jumped at talking about was how the writer talked about it being kind of a meta moment where she talks about worrying about the words that she writes being misinterpreted and dissected. And I felt like that was also very relatable from Allison because we feel that a lot sometimes in the coverage of the Sussexes that we don't want to feed the haters, but we or fuel the fire, but 
yeah, we want to critique it properly. Yeah, definitely. I feel like anything we say that feels like criticism from this point of the show forward is we we love Harry and Megan, but said it's with also, so much love. Like it's just some of this is just really funny. Like you can't make this up. It's wild. Yes, so anyways, yes. let's get into it. Like a true celebrity profile. But anyways, yeah. the big a couple of memorable moments that I did want to talk about the Instagram. That was like to have that be in the like opening graph that Megan might be back in Instagram totally stunned me. I mean, I think yeah, you I felt think that the was same. such a good hook too from from Allison. And I didn't like that she then backtracked it though. That yes. kind of made me upset because <laughs> so I was like, is it happening? Right. Cause she did write in Fortune magazine that she she was never going to return to social media. And there were a lot of reasons why. So it felt like it was almost it was like she was trolling her, which I think Allison pointed out. Yeah, that's really funny. I totally agree. I think this is I'm kind of going random here, but I think one of the moments that was very striking to me was when Megan talked about packing up Frogmore Cottage. Mm. That was one of the moments that I think I, I don't know why, if I, I just felt really sad about for her because it's like the festivities of the Jubilee weekend. And she talked about arriving and trying to kind of grab a few belongings. And it was kind of almost like a time capsule where, you know, her socks were in the drawer, her packages from Toronto, and it's kind of what could have been. That was pretty striking to me. But then- Yeah. I wish that Allison had asked more because there was like an, there was even like a, an aside, like, oh, the diary that I had kept when I was there. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. tell us what was in the diary yeah. when you were there. Like that sort of thing, or a note she wrote to herself. I was like, that's fascinating. I agree. That was really, really interesting mm-hmm. and something I wanted to know more about because it, that felt like, oh, that's what some of what they were doing while they were there, but we just didn't see them very much during Yeah, the there was just like, for some reason, that jumped out as an incredibly sad moment of the piece. But then some of the uplifting, the motherhood moments, you and I both chatted about just the Archie Lily anecdotes, the pressure to instill manners. Manners, <laughs> manners, manners, manners. Oh my gosh, but the salt and pepper thing. <laughs> yes. So we want to talk about, yeah, the cringy, there were a lot of cringy moments in this piece Love you, mean it, Harry and Meghan. But- Which is not a bad thing. Yeah, I think that's like, it's it's endearing because it makes them really rounded people. I would think that it would be weird if you had a really long celebrity profile. This is like 7,000 words. And there wasn't like these points of humanity that we see. Like it, it would be too robotic. So I do think that this like is good. It's just so cringy. <laughs> well, like the trees, the salt and pepper shakers. I think there were just those moments throughout. And, you know, that was something that jumped out to us. But I do want to talk about some of the revelations that were pretty striking. The quote about Prince Charles is getting a lot of play. This is a quote from Megan, which I had to read multiple times. And it's how Harry said to me, I lost my dad in this process. It doesn't have to be the same for them as it was for me, but that's his decision. That was really striking to me. What did you think? Yeah, I I think that actually I just read, this is like hot off the press, that Team Sussex PR has clarified to Page Six and to Omid Scobie that Megan actually meant to say she did not want Harry to lose his relationship with his dad, not that it was already lost, which I think is really interesting because they do not clarify anything really. I think that they let like the news cycle run its course and like, but I, I think that that was something where it was the cut almost misrepresented in the way they said it because Megan says, Harry said, I lost my father in the process. But I think what Megan said was Harry said that I, Megan lost my father in the process. So that's really interesting because something can be twisted so easily to mean something completely different. Or maybe it was just something where, you know, you talk about how careful Megan is with her words. Maybe it is exactly Mm. what she said, but it's 
she didn't recognize in the moment how it could be misinterpreted. But yeah. wait, I'm still reading it as the potential that Harry could lose his dad in the process. Is that not right? That the tabloids have warped the family dynamic to the point that Megan lost her dad and they're concerned that the same thing has the potential to happen with Charles. Is that inaccurate? Well, I think the quote says, Harry said, I lost my father in the process, which makes it sound like Harry said, I lost my father, Harry's father, Charles, in the process. But what Megan actually meant to say was, Harry said that I lost. Like you lost your dad. Yes, yes, that's right. That's okay. Right. Got it. Got it. So anyway, so they just like clarified that to page six, which I thought was really interesting. Because that to me is the moment that really jumps off the page. Yeah. The other thing that I think is just where we're all kind of, you know, waiting to find out where this leads, but the future content plans, will we see a reality show? They definitely hinted at that. And why would you call that a historical documentary if it's about, I don't know. I was like, a love story is not about you that took place like two years ago. It's not a historical documentary. Like that does feel, I get that they're saying it's not a reality show because a reality show is like, end this week on keeping up with the Sussex. Like I get that, but I also don't think it's a historical documentary. And I, and I think this is like exactly what I'm saying right now is why they're so tight lipped about everything. They I can't say anything without it being misconstrued and taken in so many directions. And so, yeah, like we have I to don't see it them. to yeah. understand it. Cause I think it, when I, like you said, when I picture it, I picture like keeping up with the Sussexes. And I'm just not sure how I feel about that because especially when Megan talks about their love story needing to be told, it feels like that's about looking back versus looking forward. And I think I'm almost still processing my expectations for them. Yeah. I also wanted to note that I know we've said this, but I feel like Allison did an incredible job, but I do wish there were other things she had pressed her on. For example, the school drop-off thing, because that made Mm -hmm. me scratch my head a lot about she was saying that she she needed she hated the fact that photographers would swarm the school drop off and that it would become this big photo moment whereas she wanted it to be private and she loves that in California she can do that without the press and all of this stuff but i just don't think that that's what it's really like for the cambridges i mean they do the school drop off every day right is it about paparazzi swarming it or protections in place like i guess that's where you need them to needed to press to understand Clarify. It more. yeah because i think that the invisible contract kind of makes it seem, and this is just what I, I think it seems like, is that the Cambridges do do one photo call at the first day of school, the beginning of the year, and then they're kind of left alone. Like that is the invisible contract is that they are allowed to kind of do their own thing and do the school drop-offs all year round. That's like a big thing to them. And we read all these stories about how they, they do do it themselves. But then it just seems like, and maybe this is it, is that Megan didn't want to play at those rules at all. Like, well, especially having wasn't going to play the game, as she said, having to give it to the Royal Rota first, a lot of images involving Archie when they are the very ones making racist comments about her and her family. Yeah, it's very complex. And I think that's the thing. It's like this is an article that you could read 100 times and Mm -hmm. still find different meanings in it. I think that it really is kind of for me, what's so fascinating is this is Harry and Meghan's hybrid royal life, right? I feel like this is, they talk about service a lot, but this is also the celebrity portion. This was obviously time to the Archetypes podcast release. You know, this is the typical promo that would happen around a celebrity dropping something huge, and then they do like a media blitz. I think one takeaway that I had while I was falling asleep last night, before we move on, is just I kind of have this reaction 
when I read pieces like this where – and when Megan reveals things on the podcast where I'm like, phew, I'm so glad that Harry and Megan got out of this. But then I kind of wonder, are the remaining royals really perpetuating this restrictive life or are they powerless within it? Because I, I still think that multiple mm-hmm. things that are said when you hear details like the Archie fire, I can't grasp – why Harry and Meghan as the main players don't ultimately have the say. And that goes back to when we had Nikki Kristoff on the podcast. Like, what was her expression about? The NFL players? But the thing rots from the head down. What was that expression? The Oh, the fish? The fish rots from the head down. Like, I just always feel like it's amazing to me and worrisome that the key players in the family seemingly don't have that control. Because if Megan wanted to go back to Archie, I just wish that she could. And I know I'm deviating to the podcast, but it's just what I feel when I read a lot of these revelations. No, I, th- I think that's good. I think my my thesis, like my if I my one sentence takeaway is that on the one hand, I'm I'm conflicted. And on the one hand, it feels so good to hear from them this much after so much silence the past year and a half. We've just heard nothing. And so it almost feels like it's like information overload a little bit, but it, it's good. I love mm-hmm. to Me get too. to know them better. But on the other hand, I I think the timing around Princess Diana's death, I that makes me really uncomfortable. And I maybe she didn't have any control, but I also feel like it's just a weird time to talk so much about yourself and have that be the center of attention when we know Harry's mom, you know, he's privately grieving grief after 25 years doesn't lessen. It is always there. And so I think that that's just, it's a, it's an interesting choice. If it was their choice, maybe it wasn't at all, but yeah, I mean, summer was winding down. They had to get archetypes out. So maybe it had really nothing to do with anything. And it's just all the promo tied to archetypes launching. Yeah, but then you would know they know yes. that it's no. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah, it's fascinating. So. Should we end quickly on the fashion? Yes, let's do it. I loved every outfit. I think my favorite was the tool skirt, the tool dress, Tory Burch. Oh yes, that was so stunning and had a lot of like. When you look at just the top and that striking cover photo, it had like kind of Andrew Morton, Diana, her true story ties. Yeah. Do you do you see those parallels? Yes. There's a lot of Diana parallels with the imagery. A lot. The revenge dress, totally. I feel like that Megan was Megan at so home with like, you know, yeah. the Chanel where Bare she was barefoot. Yeah. But stunning. More of that, please. And I, ju- I just love hearing from them. I don't want anyone to misconstrue this. Like, I think that it's really exciting. It's just kind of they're figuring it out and we're going to follow along with them. And it's exciting. Yeah. All right, and now our incredible interview with Patrick Jeffson, who is private secretary to Diana on her legacy, the crown, and so much more. Here's that conversation. Patrick Jeffson is a journalist, broadcaster, and best-selling author. He served as Princess Diana's private secretary and chief of staff for eight years. Between 1988 and 1996, a period of Diana's greatest popularity, but also when she was under the most intense media scrutiny following her separation from Prince Charles. We're so thrilled to have you, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. And where are you chatting us from? I live just outside Washington, D.C., in Northern Virginia. It's a bit of a surreal thought that it has been 25 years since Princess Diana's passing. What do you remember about the morning you found out she died? Well, at that stage, uh, August 1997, I had already been away from the palace for more than a year. I resigned in 1996 after the infamous Panorama interview and 
Martin Bashir scandal. So my life with uh, the princess, I thought, had come to an end. Uh, but here, a year later, I was uh, at my home in the country, and uh, I had been fast asleep and then woke up at four o'clock in the morning. And I knew I couldn't get back to sleep. You know that feeling you have sometimes. So I went downstairs to make a cup of tea, and I saw that there was a message on the telephone answer machine. And it was an editor of a Fleet Street newspaper saying, uh, had I seen the news about the princess? And was there anything I wanted to say? So I turned on the TV and, and there was the news. And uh, at first it was just that she had been involved in a car accident. And I'll be honest with you, I wasn't altogether surprised. You know, she used to drive very fast and not very well. And I thought, I'd always worried one day she would be in a car smash. And then as I continued watching, uh, the news changed to um, this devastating development that she had passed away. And at that moment, the world stopped. Yeah. Oh, gosh. It's just, it gives me chills to think about what, um, during those working years, 1988 to 1996, what was your relationship with the late Princess of Wales? How would you describe that? Well, she was my boss. Uh, and uh, uh, a very a very good boss, good in the sense that she was um, very professional. She held herself to very high standards, and she held all of us to high standards too. When I joined, the princess's uh, office was part of the prince's office, and initially I was there as a military aide for two years. But at the end of those two years, uh, she asked me to set up her own office. She and the prince were obviously set on separate paths and she wanted her own independent organization. So she said, would I leave the Navy where I was serving, come and work for her full time, recruit her staff, set up her office, run her program. And she said, Patrick, we are going to go conquer the world. <laughs> I don't know how you say no to that. My relationship with her was, was most of the time extremely good. I mean, as I said, she was, she was a great boss. Um, she worked really hard. We worked really hard. Because it was a new office, a new organization, I wanted it to reflect as much as possible, not just her personality, but her priorities. So, you know, the palace is a, is a very traditional place. There hadn't been a new office set up for years and years. Um, I was the youngest private secretary in the royal organization. We wanted to be different. And so we were, I think, very responsive, very informal, but also extremely efficient. We knew what the rules were, um, protocol um, and procedures, secretarial stuff, all of that. And I think we were very good at it. We wanted to represent our boss in the best possible way with external organizations and internally, because I had to liaise with the households of the other members of the royal family. It's not a centralized organization, really. And then we, we took this organization around the world, everywhere from Argentina to Zimbabwe. And as the princess's life evolved, as we went from a period of, I suppose, of real unhappiness when the prince and princess were publicly still together, but privately we knew they were apart. And there was a very, very stressful period leading up to the public announcement of the fact that they were going to separate. That was in 1992. So you can imagine, if you ever worked in an organization where you were concealing some big secret, 
uh, it has a very corrosive effect. It's not good for morale. So even though the news of the separation of the prince and princess was really unwelcome and a trauma really for the country and a big constitutional headache, for me personally, I was relieved because it meant that we could deal with the world as it really was instead of the world as we were kind of pretending it was. Yeah, much easier to operate from a place of truth. Yeah, was there was there some like sneaking around on the part of either of the prince or princess of Wales to kind of cover that up? Or what was that like as private secretary? Oh, well, I mean, almost true to say that our lives were sneaking around. You know, when we were trying to conceal the fact that there was this problem in the marriage, then uh, enormous energy went into presenting a false impression mm. of a happily married couple, of a happy family. Don't forget, you know, looking back on it now with hindsight, we can see it was inevitable. But at the time, it was unprecedented for there to be a separated, let alone a divorced, prince and princess of Wales. This is the next king and queen we're talking about, the next joint head of state. So we were dealing with constitutional dynamite, and it was it was stressful. It was also slightly, I would say, um, well, professionally, as a private secretary, it was... Uh, it was a great challenge because we knew that we were literally writing history, that f for the whole history of the royal family, this was a moment that would be remembered. How we, uh, and how we handled it would be remembered too. And the fact that at the end of it, the princess emerged as an independent royal operator gave us the, the, um, the freedom, I suppose, that we really wanted. So uh, 1992, when Prime Minister Major made the announcement in the House of Commons that the Prince and Princess would separate, we had already pretty much completed the, the split. We were, all, we were ready to go as an ind independent organization. And yeah. um, from my perspective, the really uh, the best part was that in the separation, the Queen had remained strictly neutral. She didn't favor the Prince or the Princess. A lot of people on the Prince's side wanted the world to assume that the queen was on their side. She wasn't. She was neutral. And so was the government. So my relations with, for example, 10 Downing Street, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, uh, continued to be very good and in many ways improved. And this meant that the princess was able to go and do her overseas work uh, representing the country. And that made all the difference logistically, diplomatically, in terms of profile. And of course, at the same time, she was embarking on a very intensive program of humanitarian initiatives while maintaining her traditional royal duties too. So, you know, she launched battleships, she visited army regiments and air squadrons, she promoted British trade, culture. It wasn't all humanitarian work by any means. I feel like this is a great uh, segue to talking about Diana's legacy. What are your thoughts on that? In particular, the fact that a whole new generation that really didn't know her while she was alive are completely captivated by her. Yes. I mean, I should be asking you, Rachel, really. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I was alive during her time. I was definitely alive. I, I feel like she, it was a very earth shattering moment for me when she passed away. I was in high school and really kind of just, I think it was the first time that someone of you know, I had followed her my whole life and just, and her boys. And I think to have that happen to someone famous was totally shocking to me. Well, I think it shocked, you know, it shocked the world. What has been really uh, rewarding for me is to find that a whole new generation, particularly of young working women, do find the Diana story relevant. I have, I have two daughters. 
um, lucky me. And, <laughs> and uh, it is something that seems to have a resonance for the new generation. I do quite a lot of, with my day-to-day uh, -day work now, I have a communications consultancy here in DC. And quite a lot of my work is talking to conferences of mostly working women. I do coaching with, with female executives because having, as a man who's worked for a woman, that gives me a particular perspective, but also the way in which her story uh, has remained true to its essential elements, which is that she was a hardworking, dutiful woman, visibly doing her very best, uh, and yet who was in a very, very difficult situation. You know, if you try to compare it with a, a work environment, okay, a palace is a palace, but there are extraordinary similarities with, you know, and on any, any organization. Her, her boss was remote um, and didn't really uh, communicate very well with her. And that was always a problem. She um, didn't have a network of co-workers. There was no proper mentoring arrangement. Her mistakes were very public and were picked over and her successes very often marginalized. So um, you don't have to go very far in, in uh, any working environment to find parallels. And the mm -hmm. fact that she was a woman who was uh, expected to fade away and be forgotten, but refused to do so, uh, I think it goes back to your question of, of what our working relationship was. I supported her because um, she wasn't perfect, but she was worth it. She had extraordinary guts and determination. And I felt she had been the victim of an injustice. And therefore, you know, fighting under her banner was, was uh, to me, the right thing to do. It gave me immense job satisfaction. And even though I thought ultimately we would probably lose the war, it was well worth fighting the fight in the meantime. Yeah, what was the injustice that you mentioned? The injustice very simply was that her husband was conducting a long-term, very well-organized affair with, um, with the wife of another courtier. Uh, and she, although not a byword for, for you know, uh, moral perfection, she had no comparable arrangement with a, a supportive partner outside the marriage. And uh, I was in no doubt in my own mind that had she been treated with respect, affection, um, and had she been encouraged and, and guided in a positive way, there is no way she would have been a rebel against the, the royal establishment. But she was, uh, you know, she wasn't just the girl next door. She was a very proud aristocratic woman. She was informal in many ways and approachable, relatable, but she was no pushover. She had uh, real steel in her soul, as a lot of her critics discovered to their embarrassment. And um, I admired that. I mean, um, she sometimes was a little too impetuous for my liking, maybe, and she could be defined to the point of recklessness. But people, I think, recognize that. And this is something that has definitely emerged and perhaps contributes to the fact that we still remember her. Absolutely. She, she uh, had what we call forgivability. People could see that she was trying her best. And if she got things wrong now and then, people could see that, okay, she got it wrong, but she'd been trying the right way. And um, she got it wrong for the right reasons. And people, people were prepared to give her the benefit of the doubt. And in any public figure, that is worth more than gold. 
I love that perspective. That's such a great word for giveability. And especially your descriptions of Diana as a royal rebel. I think we do each year have so many fictional portrayals of the princess. And of course, the crown season five is coming up. You've worked as a consultant for the show. And we want to know as someone who knew her, what do all these retellings get right and wrong about Diana? Well, most retellings of Princess Diana's life are to be seen. You have to see them in context. They usually come from one direction or another. You asked about Diana's legacy. Her legacy has been disputed ever since she died. Uh, Different people have wanted to control what we know of her, what we remember of her. Um, Her husband's advisors at various times have tried to blacken her name in order, as they see it, to make her successor more acceptable. I think that's contemptible, but nevertheless, they've tried and continue to try. Um, There are others who think that she was a saint and won't have a word said against her. Um, And I I like that, but it doesn't really help because it doesn't create a really credible figure. You know, she was a complex person. She wasn't always easy. Um, She had her faults, but uh, at the end of the day, how many great historical figures were easy? You know, would you have liked to work for Winston Churchill? I mean, of course you would, but it wasn't easy. Um, or or, uh, or uh, Franklin Roosevelt or, you know, any great historical figure tends to be um, a larger than life personality. Working for them is not everybody's idea of fun. It's bound to take up perhaps far more of your life than you might want. But uh, so long as in your own mind, you are doing good things, you are, your moral compass is pointing the right direction, then you stick with it. And she was worth sticking with. I love and that. And does, does the crown's portrayal of her, do you think that's pretty accurate to what you know of the princess? Well, I haven't seen season five yet, um, but I have Which been Which seasons did you consult for? Was it season Oh, four? I've seen season three, four, five. Oh. Um, oh. But I haven't seen the result yet. That's the point there. It's not being broadcast. Under lock and key. (laughs) Yes. But I worked with the Crown team, and I must say they're very impressive, um, the researchers. And uh, uh, I spent some time with Emma Corrin um, discussing how, you know, what sort of person Diana was. And the thing I stressed to her was that although Diana, in many respects, was a tragic figure, if you worked for or spent any time around her, you spent a lot of time laughing. She had a wonderful, natural joie de vivre. She wanted to be happy. She had, Her natural um, state was optimism. And she could see the funny side of the darkest day. I mean, perhaps, you know, again, back to what she was like as a boss, she could laugh at herself. If you gave, you know, she did something or said something that you thought was a really bad idea. If you just bought a few minutes for her to reconsider. You know, she would say, ah, okay, <laughs> let's rethink <laughs> that. You didn't have to try and tell her what to do. She would work it out for herself. Very often because she worked instinctively, you know, she had this extraordinary ability to lead from the heart. You know, leading from the heart is not something that that came naturally, comes naturally to a lot of people. I found it rather stressful. But <laughs> it was, you know, people could see, um, ordinary people could see that, she was guided by her heart, that her emotional connections, which she made with people, were extraordinarily authentic. You know, the causes she supported, AIDS, leprosy, mental illness, addiction, homelessness, 
domestic violence. I mean, it's a long, gritty list. These were causes that she chose because she could identify with people who were excluded. She said, Patrick, I can do this because I'm one of them. She felt she had been excluded, uh, not least by her husband and his family. She was an outsider. She knew what it was like to be stigmatized. She was stigmatized by her critics every day in the media. So she felt she had an affinity with other people who were outsiders. Um, in fact, she said to me the first day I got there, she said, Patrick, you'll like it working for me because we're all outsiders here. We're all incomers. And that was a, a, a very important uh, perspective to, to keep when, when dealing with, with the Royal Organization. So she had the ability to connect with people at an emotional level. It meant that the ride could be pretty scary sometimes, but at the end of the day, ordinary people, and it's as true today as it was then, could see that what they were getting with Princess Diana was the real thing. It wasn't something created by a spin doctor. You know, Diana, for all that she was in the media a lot, she never had a press secretary. She never had a press secretary. We believe that the best PR Diana could get was to go out there, do her work, be seen to do it, and then it would speak for itself. And if yeah. you, you know, the Diana story, it gets back to her legacy, is mostly visual. That's what makes it so powerful. She didn't need pages of explanation to explain what she was doing in Pakistan uh, or you know, in Zimbabwe at a, at a Red Cross feeding station or in the White House with the US president. You could see why she was there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, this is what I take issue with so much about you know, modern royalty. They have invested heavily in political style uh, image management public relations. And I think that that destroys an essential element in the relationship between the British royal family and the British people. But that's another subject. Yeah. Well, we want to ask you about the Lord Dyson report in regard to Diana's infamous panorama interview with Martin Bashir. How does it feel for you, who you were very personally affected by it, to have the truth come out after all this time? I can't tell you, Rachel. It was, it was a huge relief. I mean, for 25, 26 years, I had wondered what went wrong. I mean, you know, the relationship I had with her was very close. It re relied entirely on mutual trust. And suddenly that trust was gone. Um, and if you've ever had the misfortune of working in a job where suddenly it just didn't fit, you know, you're talking past each other. And, and you realized, well, I realized that, okay, this wasn't just a bad patch. We've been through a few bad patches. This was permanent and there was nothing I could do about it. Whatever I tried, couldn't fix it, so I left. Uh, and it was very painful. But um, for the next 26 years, I wondered what had gone wrong, what had destroyed what had been an extraordinarily strong and effective working relationship. So you well, weren't very clear on what the reason was until this report? No, I had no idea. Wow. So, and the report was only, only resulted from some fabulous tenacious journalism, investigative reporting. Um, uh, Andy Webb at Blink Pictures, he pursued this, continues to pursue it. And it was only his uh, relentless determination to find the truth that brought the whole shabby story to light. And yeah, it, it turned out that Bashir had, with enormous cunning, great patience and attention to detail, 
had managed to get to Diana and, ex- and persuade her that I was betraying her. That you personally were betraying her. I was betraying her. And he had oh, wow. the BBC graphics department um, forge um, fake bank statements to show her that I was being paid to pass on secrets about her. I mean, it was, it was absolutely catastrophic, horrible. But at least after all this time, I knew what had happened. And then, you know, the, the worst aspect of that was that I realized that she had gone to her death thinking that I had betrayed her. Mm. And that, that really, that still hurts. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, there is, there is comfort in the truth having come out and the BBC issued a, an unreserved apology and paid me quite a lot of money, all of which um, I passed on to the T. Haffen Hospice for Children in Wales, which was the last charity patronage that I set up for Diana before I resigned. There's so much that came out with the Lord Dyson Report, but do you think there's still more we don't know, either about Bashir's deceitful practices or anything else? I'm pretty sure there is, yes. Uh, I think that the report is good as far as it goes, but there's still in my mind a lot of unanswered questions. What are some of those questions? Well, for example, if he had persuaded her that I was betraying her secrets, um, did he give her any examples? Did he say he passed this or that? I've got my old office diaries out of uh, the archive and went back through those days, you know, between when I knew that he told her, according to the Dyson report, and when I left. And the, the, the way in which the relationship deteriorated over that time and trying to remember and recall specific details, it's kind of uh, morbid in a way, but it also helps satisfy... Uh, a um, a persistent desire to get to the bottom of the truth, you know, to, to really find out how extensive his lies were, who else was was involved. You know that that uh, certainly Tiggy Leg Burke, uh, William and Harry's uh, nanny, was was very severely um, defamed by by Bashir, mm-hmm. and that in itself was a major factor in my resignation. So, yeah, there is more to find out. I'm yeah. I'm. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to more being revealed. Well, one final follow-up on that we wanted to ask is, you know, what is your perspective on whether or not the interview should be aired again, as Prince William has requested? Well, Prince William and Prince Harry, for that matter, you know, for them, their mother is a sacred memory. For me, she was just my boss, albeit a special one. But I think we have to be very careful when we allow unelected public figures to decide what we do and don't see or here on the media. And while the consequences of the interview were, were very tragic and very painful, I'm sure, uh, for both princes, nevertheless, what Diana actually said in the interview is interesting. And I have not long ago gone right through line by line the transcript. And the idea that that should be forever locked away seems to me to be perhaps to missing the point. We know that the interview was obtained by dishonest means, but we do know that Diana had something to say. And things like, for example, there were three of us in the marriage. I mean, that's, that's absolutely true. And there always will be. It's ironic. Um, when Diana was, was married to the prince, the third person in the marriage was Camilla. Now the prince is married to Camilla. The third person in the marriage is Diana. 
Mm-hmm. And the third person at the coronation will be Diana. So this is something that, that uh, future generations will, will understand. And to, un- to, to get the context, you do have to study what she said when she spoke to Bashir, even though Bashir obtained the interview by dishonest means. Do you think that if the Panorama interview had never happened, Diana would still be here today? Yes, I do think that the Panorama interview certainly made made the tragedy of her death more likely. You know, you can't, you can't even with hindsight say with a hundred percent certainty this would have happened or that would have happened. But as I see it, the interview and the way it was obtained was the final straw that that um, destroyed Diana's relationship with the royal establishment, specifically with with the Queen um, and senior members of the family. So from that point on, uh, the Queen instructed Charles and Diana to finalize the divorce. And thereafter, she was really very much on her own. I mean, I had resigned. That didn't leave much in the way of experienced office support. Various other people resigned too. And very simply, um, you have to ask, why was she in Paris with Dirty Fire in the back of that car that night? And the line from Panorama to her position there, having put her safety in the hands of people who weren't competent to look after her. Uh, I think you can definitely make that, that connection. Mm-hmm. Had she remained with, with palace support, had she remained, had she made better decisions, obviously, but the situation she was in was created by Panorama. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Patrick, last question. We want your professional opinion because, of course, you were inner circle for Princess Diana for so long. Have we learned anything since her death? I mean, there's, you know, the media, the invisible contract with the royal family. What have we learned since Diana's passing? What have we learned or what have they learned? Both. (laughs) Either one. I guess start with us and then them. Um, I suppose we have learned that fairy tale princesses uh, do belong in, in fairy tale books. They don't really belong in real life. Even, uh, uh, happy, contented dukes and duchesses like the Cambridges appear to be. Um, that doesn't come about by by chance. That's there's a lot of hard work there, a lot of a lot of uh, presentational work too. You know, they have very very uh, sophisticated public relations teams. Um, the the royal family has become far more packaged. This is the irony, really. Um, they were introduced or. or adopted political style public relations because Diana was so popular. <laughs> they couldn't work out why. And they had to try and, Prince Charles particularly, had to try and make up ground. And he turned to spin doctors to try and improve his public image. Uh, I think he failed personally, but you know there is no doubt that that, that that tendency has now become a permanent part of royal life. What we see of the royal family is largely a packaged product I don't think you could ever package Diana. What you saw was the real thing, better or worse. So we have learned that the royal family now can be packaged and 
glossed in, uh, and spun in a way that we, I suppose, more often associate with with uh, commercial products or politicians. And that may lead to more consistently good press, but I think it, it destroys a fundamental element in the relationship between the British monarchy and the British people uh, in a world full of fake emotion and fake appeals to our emotions, um, the royal family should represent something that is absolutely authentic, is not fake, can't be faked. But now there is room for doubt because of the way in which it has been professionally packaged. We've also learned, I think, that the job or the, the, the occupation, the vocation of, of marrying into the royal family is not for the faint-hearted. And it's not for the for, for anybody who is unclear about what's what's the purpose of the institution. The royal family is is not uh, a celebrity organization. You know, celebrities achieve fame. Royal people borrow their status. It's on loan from the British people, the British people uh, who pay for it, among other things. So the idea that celebrity and royalty can be blurred together, I think has become quite uh, accepted, but I think it's quite false. And people who think that royalty is celebrity are wrong. Uh, and although sometimes outwardly it can have some of the same appearance as celebrity, um, royalty, royal status, that respect has to be earned every day, over and over again. Not by just uh, what you might call service or great photo shoots, um, but by visibly doing your duty. Duty is doing the stuff you don't want to do. It's the boring stuff. And this is where Diana excelled. Her popularity wasn't built on great photo shoots in glossy magazines. I mean, there were plenty of those and they were wonderful. Diana's popularity, the bedrock of her popularity, was consistent, low-key, traditional royal duty over months and years. It's being in a, a industrial town, um, which is suffering from neglect on a cold winter's night, meeting people who are at the, uh, in great need or in suffering um, and shining, as she said in, in her interview, uh, shining light into people in their, tunnel, in their dark tunnels. That's why we need to remember what she said in the interview because in there, perhaps inadvertently, I think she identified what people expect of the British royal family and what anybody who is in the British royal family needs to remember if they want to continue to earn uh, the respect, deference, and very, very uh, comfortable lifestyle that they, very many of them, take for granted. Yeah. Well, Patrick, we so appreciate you taking this much time to talk with us, and especially during such a meaningful week reflecting back. Um, is there any way that our audience can continue to keep up with your work and what you're doing currently in Washington, D.C. and all around? Well, a lot of the lessons I learned working for Princess Diana, you know, I learned on the job. So I pass on as much of that as I can to my clients now, uh, helping with, with media relations, um, reputation work, but also uh, working with people who have family offices, who have difficult family negotiations to uh, navigate. So, uh, and I particularly like working with, as I said, with, with, with professional women, because a lot of the tips I picked up uh, with a woman boss, 
I find it quite relevant to today's work environment where gender issues are extremely important. Um, and sometimes a, a male perspective, even one from a, a gray-haired old, old uh, uh, chap like me can uh, help in the important business of helping us all understand each other better. We need very to take true. that course. Thank you so much, Patrick, for joining us. You're very welcome. Love you to talk to you. Okay, now our highs and lows of the week. It's time for the Royal Highs and Lows. The low for me this week, Rachel, is I think just sadness at what Wednesday, we're recording this on Tuesday, what Wednesday represents as far as 25 years since Diana. Um, I constantly think of the plaque that's on the Diana Memorial at Althorpe, and that's where she's buried, of course. And it does feel like it reads like a little prayer to me. It says, nothing brings me more happiness than trying to help the most vulnerable people in society. It is a goal and essential part of my life, a kind of destiny. Whoever is in distress can call on me. I will come running wherever they are. That's a quote from Diana. Oh, I love that. I know. My love of the week is, you know, on par with what our listener email said. I miss the Cambridges. I'm also personally and professionally ready for school to start. <laughs> I bet that they are too. Personally. So I am, based on this week, a hair nervous about our calendars because, man, we have so much ahead. I think that the clock's going to strike September 6th after Labor Day, and it's going to be insane. All is gangbusters. Okay, we didn't really talk about this because it's it's like so much going on in this episode, but my high is just the second episode of Archetypes with Mariah Carey, I mean, queen. And they talk about black hair, they talk about growing up biracial. Leotine Price, who I didn't really know that much about and learned a lot about, that was really interesting. MTV Cribs clips, hello, flashback. And Megan's kind of a come to Jesus moment at the end of the episode where she's like, and I realize now, this is why I feel this way. And I'm like, okay, that was good. That was a full circle moment for you. So I'm excited for more. Mindy is next week. Mindy Kaling. Obsessed with Mindy Kaling. I cannot wait for that episode. My high of the week is related to Her Majesty. It sounds like it's not confirmed by Buckingham Palace that she will swear in the new prime minister, but at Balmoral, not Windsor. I love that she's not relinquishing her duties yet to Prince Charles and that they were able to potentially find this workaround. Why go to the prime minister when you could bring the prime minister to you? And I just, again, I feel like my theme of my highs and lows is I just miss everybody, but I'm in awe of the queen's sense of duty. Yeah, they'll be back soon and then we'll be like completely overwhelmed. (laughs) All right, just a reminder before we close, as always, if you haven't already, which we do love the people that have written us a wonderful review and left us five stars. If you haven't, please, please do. It would make our week. And we have a DM from Allison. She says, hi, Rachel. I just want to say thank you for featuring Princess Beatrice's white and blue Reformation dress on the podcast. I loved it so much. I purchased one and recently wore it to a family wedding. It was so comfortable and looked great on. Thanks again to Unverta for featuring lighter segments like royal fashion amidst the content of the pod. Wouldn't miss a week. Oh, Allison, I, I shopped the Reformation sale and I'm, I'm like mad at myself. I, I was going to so say, money. tell me you really, I'm like leaning on this one dress, but of course my choice is not on sale, but you did well for yourself. It sounds like, Oh, I mean, it's all on sale, but it added up to a lot somehow. I'll have to do a fashion show for you, Rachel, later. Please. Fashion please. show. Fashion show. Okay. <laughs> fashion show. <laughs> all right. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And of course, hit follow on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast. Until next week, God God save save the the pod. pod.
Her Majesties of Royally Obsessed have retired for this episode. God save the pod. And if you fancy the podcast, give Royally Obsessed the royal rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Royally Obsessed is a gallery podcast production.